Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everybody, welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, we are going to do something unprecedented today. I'm really excited about this because if you think back to the evolution of Alpha Chat, the podcast. You, low those many months. Low those many months ago. You were at first on the show all the time as a guest. Mm-hmm. And you were so good that we elevated you, so to speak, to co-host, mm-hmm. which has been awesome. Okay. I have never been a guest on this podcast because I've been hosting the whole time. Until today. Until today. It's time to change things up. You're going to be the host. I'm going to be the guest. And you know what? Maybe the use of unprecedented was a little too dramatic here because <laughs> usually that's for like big sweeping things, right? But it is something we've never done before. Big news in Alpha Chat. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. Okay. On the show today, Shannon, there is actually kind of a theme that runs throughout it, emerging markets or not yet developed markets. We want to be PC about it. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I say because Cuba is going to be the first topic we talk about. Uh, Obama's trip to Havana, what it signifies, what it means for the Cuban economy, and also, frankly, what it means to me personally. But Cuba isn't really an emerging market yet, right? It doesn't have any kind of a public market of which right. to speak. It's still it's a very poor economy. It's not quite an emerging market right. yet. It's but pre-emerging. Yes, <laughs> it's pre-emerging. That's true. And then... After that, Shannon and I recorded an interview in Washington, D.C. not long ago with Carolyn Freund about emerging markets and about billionaires who emerge, so to speak, in emerging markets and about how before it used to be because they were doing all these rent-seeking, rent-extracting activities. They were in commodities markets or whatever. They were plutocrats. Now they're entrepreneurs, and that's actually really important for the development of emerging markets. It was a really fascinating interview. Here we go. All right, Cardiff, we're on kind of opposite sides of the table today. Yes, I'm a little nervous, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> well, welcome to Alpha Chat. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> so nice to be here. <laughs> um, so as as probably everyone at this point knows, uh, President Obama was in Cuba this week. Why don't we start off by reminding people what exactly has been going on between Cuba and the U.S. in the past year. It was just about a year ago that uh, we had this announcement we were going to be normalizing relations. Yes. So where are we? What's happened? Quite a lot, actually. It used to be really difficult for Americans to travel to Cuba. And now, a year and four months later, the vast majority of those travel restrictions have been like totally eviscerated. It's amazing. So, for instance, one of the big changes uh, that took place in just the week before Obama visited this week is that Americans can now travel to Cuba by themselves for quote unquote people to people educational reasons without a tour group. Okay, so after Obama's big announcement in December of 2014, right, Americans could start traveling to Cuba under what's called a general license, which just means you don't need explicit written permission from the government to travel to Cuba if you qualified under one of 12 general categories, right? Right. Those included journalism. They included 
educational tours. They included cultural exchanges, religious reasons, so if you have family there. Yeah, exceptions of, to the rule. Yeah, but all right. kinds of things that kind of do verge into tourism, right? I mean, I had quite a few friends who went last year. You know, they went on tour groups that had, a, you know, ostensibly educational purposes, but it did sort of seem like they basically went as tourists. Yeah, that's right. And people were doing it because essentially enforcement of the travel ban has become a zero priority, forget low priority, has become a zero priority under the Obama administration, right? But the president himself can't without Congress just end the tourism embargo. So technically, it is still illegal to be a tourist in Cuba. But with the change in just the past two weeks, you can go there as a tourist in all but name only. So if you go to Cuba now, Right, You just need to be able to pull out some receipts of the museums you went to, the private restaurants where you ate. And by the way, almost all the restaurants in Cuba are now private because the Cuban government has essentially gotten out of that business. So this is a big change. You can go to Cuba without admitting you're a tourist as a tourist, essentially. Now, just to be clear, I'm not advising people to break the law. All right. So take all your necessary precautions, do the right thing. But this is an incredible moment. All right. Um, and I don't think that Americans just yet understand how easy it is to go, but it's going to be something that I think is better and better understood uh, as time goes on. Then there's the trade embargo, still very much in place, okay? But again, Obama's essentially been clawing away at all of the prohibitions to the extent that he can, because he is, of course, just the head of the executive branch. To overturn the embargo, you need Congress. But for instance, uh, there have been tremendously big exemptions to the rules carved out for telecommunications firms in finance, and in a few other categories like agriculture as well. So I think you can see you know, where the momentum is going right now. All right. So you actually spent quite a bit of time last year in Cuba. Yeah. For those of us who haven't had a chance to go, what is it like there? What is life like for sort of the average Cuban at this uh, point? It, it is still very frustrating. Uh, and I think something that people need to understand is that the vast majority of the Cuban economy is still governed by communist principles. Now, for a lot of people, that's kind of like an old-fashioned word, but it does very much apply there. The Cuban one-party system isn't just communist in name the way, say, China's is, right? It still governs according to centralized Marxist principles. So the um, government and is essentially controlling a significant sec sector of the economy. Most of the economy, yeah. right? And what that means is that the economy still remains very much ossified, it's a very frustrating place to live for the average Cuban. Internet access, which is essentially something that's necessary to participate in the global economy now, is still heavily restricted, although it's loosening up. You know, And most of all, economic opportunity almost doesn't exist. So state salaries, and that's still about three quarters of the population has a state job, a state salary, are the equivalent of about $25 US a month. A month. Right. That's outrageous, okay? And the stuff that comes free in Cuba, okay, isn't terrible, but it's also not great. And frankly, you can get that stuff only if you can fund it with a vibrant other parts of the economy, right? So right. healthcare, education, okay, they're actually not as great as they're hyped up to be, but at least they're free and at least some of the basics are covered. But the government can't fund it, okay? Right. It's really hard right now because it has no money from anywhere else in the economy. So what you've had in the last few years is a loosening of the rules around some parts of the private sector, but actually the vast majority of the economy is still run by the government. It's still very heavily centralized, still has massive corruption embedded in it. And it means that 
young Cubans in particular face big problems, uh, face a very bleak future unless things begin to change. You, so you just wrote a piece about it, we should say, this week. Yes, I a, did. A big, long piece that we'll, we'll direct everyone to. Um, you also wrote about this extra element uh, that complicates things for Cubans of the dual currency system where you're saying so many people who are employed by the state, you know, the salaries they're bringing home are not just low, but then they also end up having people who are like highly qualified, people we would consider yes. highly qualified, like doctors, you know, are taking second jobs like as waiters, right, because they actually can make more money there. A lot more money. Yeah. Sometimes they just they actually leave their state jobs as engineers or academics or whatever to take jobs as waiters to try to start a bed and breakfast to drive a taxi. Right. right. So these all are these sort of tourism facing tourism facing uh, businesses that have access to the stronger currency. This requires a little bit of explanation. I won't get too much into the weeds. Right. Mm -hmm. Cuba has had two currencies since the mid-1990s, right, for reasons we don't have to get into <laughs> now, okay? One currency is convertible to foreign currencies, right? It's called the convertible peso, mm -hmm. okay? And with that, you can convert it to the U.S. dollar, which is pegged at one-to-one. -one. So one U.S. dollar gives you one convertible peso roughly before you get into the usual FX differential, right? Mm -hmm. But you can exchange it for euros, Canadian dollars and other foreign currencies. And consequently, that is the much stronger currency. Okay. It has a second currency in which average Cubans are paid by the state mm -hmm. called the national peso. It is not convertible into foreign currencies. Okay. And it's convertible to the convertible currency only at 25 to one. Right. So it's just worth a lot less. And that's the one they get paid in. But this creates a lot of curious problems. Right. For one thing, there is a kind of quasi-apartheid-like system in Cuba where people who have access to a lot of convertible currencies also therefore have access to a lot of goods and products that people who just get paid in the national peso do not have access to, right? They just don't have enough money. It's not, you know, right. their salaries aren't worth as much. The issue here, though, is that Cuban state-run companies, okay, which sell their goods denominated in the national peso are allowed to record their revenues, okay, as if the national peso were convertible to the dollar at one-to-one, -one, even though bananas. it's not. It is. <laughs> and it totally screws up the national statistics, right. right? Anybody who tells you that they know how big the Cuban economy is, is lying. Nobody knows right. because the usual price mechanisms, the price dynamics that exist in a normal place, don't actually exist there, okay? But this also creates a problem for Cubans who work in these state sector jobs because they see, gosh, these people in the private sector, the limited private sector that's allowed in the tourism business, all right, so restaurants, bed and breakfast, those guys have access to the very strong convertible peso, right? Because that's what tourists pay in. Right. Okay, so they see that and they think, God, why am I being a doctor at the equivalent of 60 bucks a month or an engineer at 25 bucks a month or a construction worker at 20 bucks a month? When I could be making that much in a day right. or maybe less by working in these other fields that have access to it. And it creates this really weird distortion. So in addition to just figuring out what the, you know, what the actual macroeconomic situation in Cuba is, Cuba needs to synthesize its currencies to end these ridiculous distortions. The problem there is that Cuban state-run enterprises, which still employ a huge chunk of the population, okay, would be revealed to be insolvent right. if they were to synthesize those two currencies because essentially what the dual currency system does is it acts as a huge subsidy to right. the importing sector, 
which is run by the state, and has a huge tax to the exporting sector, including tourism, which tends to be more efficient because it's run by the private sector. It's run by people who get to you know barter and stuff. So the rise of the private sector in Cuba has brought tremendous improvements in the standards of living of the people who have access to it, okay? But at the same time, because the rest of the economy is not liberalized, it creates these huge distortions, and it's kind of a nightmare. And so the only solution available to the government is to synthesize the two currencies so that it can modernize mm-hmm. its economy, okay? And in the meantime, it needs to have a fiscal boost ready to go so that when it's revealed that these state-run companies are not solvent without the subsidy, it has enough cash that it can throw at the problem and cushion the blow of the two currencies being synthesized, okay? The issue, of course, is that Cuba is perennially starved of foreign currency, of hard currency. And so that's a real challenge. And it's also one of the reasons, I think, that it's loosening up parts of the economy, like the touristic sector, to attract more investment to attract more tourists and to get more hard currency. So they're losing this. Are they actually succeeding in attracting businesses? There's There's been a couple U.S. firms that have announced even as recently as this week, right, that they're going to be going in. Yeah. So it, it's happening very slowly. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we also need to remember that Cuba has very weird and stringent laws around foreign investment. So usually, historically, when a foreign company wanted to invest in Cuba, It had to partner with the Cuban government, which would set up a company of its own that it could direct. And that company set up by the government was usually the majority stakeholder in the investment, in the project, whatever it is, which means that a foreign company would have to partner with the communist government. Okay, it would have a minority stake and it couldn't pay its workers directly. Essentially incentive to do this. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, let's say you're a European company. Mm -hmm. Instead of paying your own workers directly you would give the relevant Cuban ministry. So let's say it was the Ministry of Tourism. Mm -hmm. Okay, you'd give the Cuban ministry your euros, okay? And then the Cuban ministry would be in charge of paying the employees. And guess what? It didn't pay its employees in euros. (laughs) It gave them that crappy national peso instead. So there was a kind of problem of exploiting workers as well if you were to do this. Now, some people still did it anyways, all right, thinking that like sort of the benefits still outweighed the cost. At least it was something. At least it was more money going to the island rather than less. Mm-hmm. But it had this problem, and it was, wasn't very attractive to others, especially when you remember that Cuba also has no legal or bankruptcy protections to speak of for these foreign investors. But partly, I think, in response to the way that the relationship with the U.S. is starting to loosen up, Cuba is now in the process of rewriting its foreign investment laws. It introduced a new law in 2014. It has set up an economic zone, okay, where foreign investors can take a majority stake in whatever project they have Mm -hmm. and where they have a little bit more control, in some cases a lot more control, over their own employees. So far, all that's been a bit of a disappointment. They actually haven't attracted that much new investment. But you're right. In just the week before Obama went to Cuba, okay, Marriott and Starwood announced deals to co-manage some hotels in Cuba. Uh, Google might be on the cusp of setting something up on the island so that it can help people get more internet access. You know, Airbnb is now allowed to offer people from all over the world access to its listings for Cuba, whereas before it had to be only Americans who Mm -hmm. could go to Cuba legally. Now it's anybody. So this stuff is happening, and there's interest there, okay? A lot of work has to be done, especially... On the Cuban side, I would emphasize that. So for all the U.S. has done, a lot of work has to be done on the Cuban side. But man, things are at least finally starting to move. Yeah. The way you describe it, it sort of it sounds like it's a sort of like 
elaborate like dance almost right of like of trying to build some sort of mutual trust right because i mean essentially you know between the u.s and cuba both governments have to be willing to sort of say all right we're gonna we're gonna try this in order to encourage the the other partner to reciprocate so i mean which you know which which sounds like it's good you, you, on the other hand, you also write about how, you know, back in the 1990s, there were Cuba had made some efforts to sort of loosen things up, particularly around the end of Soviet subsidies, right? When right. the economy needed a boost, but then those were pulled back in. So, is there a sense this time? I mean, now we're talking about you know serious moves being made by the U.S. government and you know serious interest from you know big companies like Google, like Marriott. Is there a sense that this time around is different? I think there is, right? As skeptical as we should always be of using that phrase. Let's keep in mind that there is a lot of mutual suspicion still between these two governments, right? Now, on the U.S. side, they clearly want to race ahead and they want this to be a signature legacy of the Obama administration, something new and big and historic. Right. And they're pretty close to, to being able to claim that, but they don't want to be made out to look like a bunch of naive rubes, okay? And right. so if- sort of handed everything over. Yeah, yeah, where you sort of loosen the policy- and Cuba, in exchange, makes promises to make the business environment better, to respect human rights. And then after attracting all this new investment, essentially Cuba says, nope, we're tightening things up again. We just wanted the money to keep ourselves going. And we, we saw were just some worried of that. about control. We saw some of that tension even this week uh, in Obama's visit, right? Of course. Of course. And, you know, uh, it's, it's still – Cuba is still a place where there's very little free press. What free press does exist is usually – in the ranks of online writers whose writing is often blocked in Cuba. And so it ends up being read by an international rather than a domestic Cuban audience. Dissidents are still rounded up. They're thrown in jail sometimes for sort of arbitrary reasons. It's not quite as bad as it was in the 2000s when people were being given these kind of brutal 20-year sentences for absolutely nothing. But it's still really bad. Uh, And one of the difficult balances uh, that Obama had to strike while he was in Cuba was between saying, listen, we're not trying to impose our system on you. We respect that you have the right to self-determination, but at the same time, we believe in certain values. And if we're really going to have this relationship, we need to be able to speak about them. And some of those values include respect for human rights, respect for the press, respect for people being able to protest. People in Cuba are really pissed off about not being able to do these things. And they're well aware now that things work differently elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in that sense, the internet has changed everything. And I think that's one place where the Cuban government actually has realized it can't go back. And you make this this interesting point that China may be a model when it comes to that. Can, can you articulate that? Yeah. Uh, and I say it, by the way, regrettably. <laughs> so in terms of internet access, right, I think the Cuban government has now realized that if it wants to attract foreign investment, if it wants to have a relatively modern economy, connectivity is a must. You right. can't you can't possibly attract foreign companies to invest on your island if nobody has internet access, right? right? It's kind of a basic feature of the global economy right. now. Right. But at the same time, the Cuban government is worried more than anything else about control, right? That's, that's sort of what it is to have a one-party system right. run right. by a kind of autocratic gerontocracy, you know, and that's what it is still. And so I think what's going to be appealing to the Cuban government about the Chinese model is that China has embraced the proliferation of modern technologies throughout its economy. Uh, At the same time, it has maintained control by focusing on one specific thing, which is 
the problem of collective action, right? In other words, China is not so worried with uh, people just sort of submitting online complaints about inefficiency, corruption, injustice in China. People are going to do that. They probably can't stop everybody from doing that. But the minute that they try to organize, the minute they try to say, hey, we're going to all get together and go to the town square and protest, that's when the Chinese government leaps into action. And it does have a pretty big infrastructure in place to monitor what happens online. And everybody knows that. And so what ends up happening uh, is that they end up self-censoring. Now, if any of this rhetoric sounds familiar to you, it's because I learned all of this by talking to Emily Parker and Clay Shirky, who've done some wonderful reporting out of there in an earlier podcast. Right. Uh, and everybody should look that up. I'm just sort of parroting what they've said about the Chinese model. And I think the Cuban government, it has made some signals in this direction in the past, is probably going to move in that direction where it tries to modernize economy without surrendering too much political control. I say that again, unfortunately, as somebody who believes that Cuba desperately does need to open up for the sake of its people, right? Right. But I'm trying to be realistic about what the outcome might be. It will probably shift in the direction of that kind of a model before it just opens things up. So then on the the political side in the US, I mean, you point out this this is clearly sort of meant to be Obama's legacy. Obama's leaving office. We're in the middle of a presidential election, which as much as we are all consumed with what's happening here in the U.S. has potential huge reverberations around the world. What what's the likely outcome for the situation with Cuba, depending on uh, who we end up as as our next president? You know, there's a couple of ways of looking at this, right? First, Cubans themselves are absolutely paying attention to the U.S. elections, in part because they realize that if a Democrat wins the White House, the path that we're on is likely to continue. So either a Hillary Clinton or a Bernie Sanders as president would carry the same policies that Obama, right? right? And and they would probably keep moving in the direction of warmer ties uh, and a kind of mutually respectful relationship, even with the communist government there, right? And they, they think that that's a better thing because they want the embargo to end as quickly as possible, right? If it's a Republican in the White House, it's obviously more of a wild card. And if you've listened to the rhetoric of the two Cuban Americans, two until recently, of course, uh, who were in the race, they don't want to have warmer ties with Cuba. They would probably, uh, at least in terms of what they say, they would at least halt the progress that's been made. Right. And that's when you get into the complications of sort of the of Cuban American politics. Of course, yeah. of course. But there's another way of looking at this, which is that in the worst case scenario from the perspective of the Cubans, where a Republican does end up in the White House, Okay, it's not necessarily clear that any of the progress that's been made to this point would be rolled back for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it's unlikely that especially in a first term, Mm -hmm. anybody in the White House is going to want to expend too much political capital on Cuba. Right. Right. Which, let's all remember, is still an island of 11 million people that doesn't have a lot of money and doesn't pose a national security threat to the U.S. Okay, but second, minds are changing, including within the Cuban-American community. Okay, I'm Cuban-American. In my youth, I was myself kind of a hardliner. I've shifted in the direction of being very much Mm pro-engagement. Embargo didn't work. Okay, we have a better chance uh, of doing good things on behalf of the Cuban people, right, by embracing a better relationship Mm -hmm. and by visiting the island and doing business with them. Okay, a lot of other Cuban Americans, maybe a lot later than I did, are also converging on that view. Okay, and we've seen that in a lot of polls recently. So even Cuban Americans and a majority of Republicans also thinks that ending the embargo and trading with Cuba is a good idea. So why would a new Republican president 
expend a lot of political capital to undo some things that even a majority of Republicans and a majority of what traditionally was the opposition to warmer ties embraces. I don't think that most of the progress that's been made to this point will be rolled back. I'm fairly optimistic about that. But all the same, you never know with these things. So yeah, Cubans are Cubans are intrigued by American politics, in part because there's such a longstanding history of not just hostilities, but also of just complicated ties with the U.S., its enormous northern neighbor, uh, and also because of the potential that it'll have a direct impact on their lives from now on. Well, we should all go to Cuba, it sounds like, and check it out for ourselves. I recommend it. Again, take the right precautions, okay? <laughs> Make sure you keep those receipts of all the museums and restaurants you go to. But yeah, I think it'd be a good thing. Will you be going back this year? Yes, I will. Excellent. I will. Well, well, we'll have to talk about it. Shannon, you are a fabulous host. <laughs> Thanks, Cardiff. You're a great guest. <laughs> Shannon, you remember our trip to D.C. a few weeks ago? Yes, I do. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. That's true. It's just in my in my old age, I'm starting to forget things. We had we some had, good conversations. We did. We did. This one with Carolyn Freund was, I think, especially interesting. She's of the Peterson uh, Institute, and she's got this new book out called Rich People, Poor Countries, and it is about, guess what, rich people in poor countries. <laughs> but it's about rich people in poor countries becoming less poor, in part because these rich people have become rich. Right. Sort of about the Mark Zuckerbergs of the emerging world. It is. It is. And more than anything, it is a really data-driven investigation into the relationship between people becoming rich in poor countries and those countries uh, starting to develop and starting to get closer to the point where they can join the developed world. Uh, really fascinating chat. Here it is. So first of all, uh, thanks for talking to us. Uh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So the thesis of your book, I think, uh, is going to upturn a lot of expectations or a lot of understanding about what rich people in emerging markets are like and specifically how they got their money. Because I think a lot of us have this association in our minds that if you're a rich person in, in an emerging market, if you're a billionaire, you might have been a Russian oligarch or you might be someone you know who obtained their money via a monopolistic behavior, something like that. You write that that might have been the case for a while, but things have changed. So why don't you tell us uh, what you found and what the main premise of your book is? Well, there's still a lot of those people out there. But the main premise or the thing that surprised me most when I looked into the data was, one, how fast the overall group of emerging market billionaires has grown. So it, a decade ago, it was about 20% of the total population of billionaires. Now it's 43%. Then when you look at who these people are and the composition of them, the only group or the big change is in company founders and executives. So people who develop new products, start companies, trade overseas, et cetera, and make their money that way. This group used to be really tiny, only about 15%. Now it's a third. So you still have a lot of other types of billionaires out there. But this is a really big shift to a new type of person who's developing you know, products that we all know and use and are good for an economy and lots and lots of jobs. They earned it, you might say. Yeah, they earned it. Okay. Something else that was kind of interesting uh, to me uh, was that you separated out 
not just uh, the people who earned it as company founders and the people who inherited it, but also the people who made their money uh, in finance and real estate, which is obviously something we talk a lot about uh, on our podcast. Can you just talk about what you found in terms of uh, emerging market billionaires who made their money in finance and real estate? Sure. You know, I should say there's a backstory to this because I'm a trade economist. I work on the real side. And I initially lumped this group in with the kind of politically connected and privatization people. And my colleagues here really complained about that because a lot of these people do create new products. They're the ones who finance the companies to grow in terms of real estate. They, in some cases, you know, develop countries and and housing and roads and other things for that are good for growth. But... It, so it was kind of hard to see, think about where to categorize this group. So in the end, I just decided to keep them as a separate group. So you could put them in the category you like, whether it be the creators or the the kind of uh, more politically connected guys. And they're, they're probably some of both. Their share has stayed actually pretty flat. So they are really important. They're a big share, but they're not they're neither a growing share nor nor declining. Okay. When we're seeing this new sort of class of founders, how does that compare actually to the developed world? It's now about the same. And, you know, before you used to see a lot more founders overall in advanced countries than emerging markets, whereas now those shares have have become almost equal, still a little bit more in the advanced world. But really, it's it's converging the same way as income is is converging. The big difference, I would say, between the advanced countries and emerging markets is that there's a lot more inherited wealth in advanced countries, which makes sense because there are a lot of really old companies that have been around for for even hundreds of years. So there's and, just more wealth to inherit. Yeah, there's more wealth to inherit. That well, if since this is new wealth, it kind of has to be new wealth, not inherited wealth in emerging markets. So that's where the big difference lies, that there's a lot more inherited in the advanced countries and still more politically connected wealth in the emerging markets. Why don't we talk a little bit also about why this is so important, okay? Because it wasn't just that you wrote this book and you arrived at this conclusion and just kind of left it there. Actually, you found that this is important to uh, the development of emerging markets as well, that it's kind of intricately connected with the development process of going from being a low income to a middle income and a middle Mm -hmm. income to a richer country. Why is it important that a high share of uh, the billionaires in emerging markets actually earn their wealth rather than inherit it? Well, my interest in this topic came from work I had done on large companies. One thing that has really struck economists as more and more data has become available is how important individual companies are for a country's success. So you take a country like Korea, you know, you take out Samsung, Hyundai, Kia, you know, a few a few companies and Korea looks a lot different. Samsung's 20% of Korean GDP. Even in the U.S., the top 100 companies account for a third of the variation in income. So individual companies are important. And this made me think, well, where do these companies come from? They don't just appear out of nowhere. And, in, you know, when you think of the top Google now, the biggest company in the world or in, or in the U.S., you know, was started by a couple people. Apple started by one person. So you have this individuals actually do matter. 
And having a handful of individuals that create really big companies that employ hundreds of thousands or even millions of people really change the outlook for a country. And if you look over the development of the U.S. during its kind of industrialization period, you see the same thing, the rise of big food companies, Heinz and Campbell Soup, the rise of big oil companies, Standard, of course, the rise of GE. You know, a lot of big companies tend to be developed as countries modernize. Uh, let's talk about regional differences. What can we say about the uh, emerging market billionaires uh, in East Asia versus those in Latin America versus those in uh, Middle East and North Africa, those that, those that earned it as entrepreneurs? The East Asians are the most dynamic. So you just look at this region and, and really a big share of the new wealth that's driven by these kind of creators is from East Asia. Not surprisingly correlated with the phenomenal growth in that region. Latin America has a lot more inherited wealth. You do see kind of handfuls of, of these creators in, in different pockets, especially in retail, cosmetics, clothing, some kind of tradable goods as well, but a lot of inherited wealth in Latin America. Middle East and North Africa is really different. So especially if you consider the Arab part of the Middle East and North Africa, so you take out the Israel or Turkey, what what you find is just completely missing group. And I think that's part of the stagnation in that region, part of the failure to globalize and integrate with the rest of the world that you don't, you know, there's no Samsung in the Middle East. Is there a, a particular role played by um, shifts in commodities, commodities activity, commodity prices uh, that you found in terms of um, the emergence of this class? Uh, because uh, I would note that it, you know, it happened at around the same time that you had the emergence of this class in the 2000s, which was also when we had the kind of most acute phase of the commodities boom. Uh, I guess I'm wondering if there's a relationship there. Actually, that was one of the things that surprised me most is that you would expect the resources group, the politically connected resource, and all resources are thrown in with this group just by the nature that your wealth tends to move much more with the price of commodities than than with talent. What really surprised me was that this group wasn't the dominant group, because exactly for that reason, that you have this commodity boom, you'd expect that that group to be the one that's really thriving and accounting for a lot of the wealth. So that group is there. And it's, you know, in Russia, it's it's still 75% or so of, of their wealth. So countries that have the resources do have those connections. But I, I still think that these founders are quite a unique group and different from that, not directly connected to the resource wealth. On the issue of gender, what do we see sort of among these founders uh, in, in the developing world? Are there many women entrepreneurs and or the, what are the kind of companies that we do see where there may be female founders? Great question. There's very few women large-scale entrepreneurs. And the only two countries that really have, you know, even even half a dozen of these are, are China and the U.S. So 
there has to be some kind of problem in a world where 50% of the population are women and then there's so little entrepreneurship among women. And I think one of the problems is financing, that the large-scale women entrepreneurs, the women who've built companies into billion-dollar companies, tend to have done it through retained earnings. Mm -hmm. So they're not able to access the kind of immense financing you typically need right. to, 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 start a, to start and grow a big company. I have a question about how these findings could be tied to different kinds of development models. But I'm especially thinking of the East Asian model, which is thought to have worked for at least a few countries that have tried it in the past. It usually includes some combination of limited protectionism for a handful of companies, at least, especially in manufacturing and export sectors, some state-directed investment, but then competition among those companies and also competition in the global marketplace because that's where they're exporting their goods. I'm wondering if uh, that is either a necessary or a very useful set of policies uh, for the emergence of this class of people, or uh, if there are a lot of exceptions and maybe there's not as much of a correlation. What do you think? I think that's something where we still need more research. And the kind of old wisdom was you don't really need to intervene at all. The best thing to do is property rights, a free entry so new firms can start up and new firms can grow, and then openness to trade. Openness to trade is important because it pushes resources into the, their most competitive uses, gets the prices right, and it gives you big markets to grow. So especially if you're a small country, that would give you the big, big markets to grow. The thing is, there tend to be a lot of other distortions in, in emerging markets sometimes that are harder to deal with directly. It does seem like many of the countries that have grown have offered some kind of support. So I think there's starting to be a switch that maybe it is okay to do, I don't really want to call it industrial policy, but at least to encourage firms to, the most productive firms to grow large. And perhaps it's just making sure that financing is available and the government inter, you know, intervening to make sure that there's enough financing to grow because so much of growth comes from not getting resources to your best industries, but to your best firms. And if that process isn't happening naturally, I think there may be a role for the government to step in. But it's really important that it's not corrupted because in so many cases, it, you know, it can end up going to the brother-in-law or whatever. So it has to be based on something. And that's where, where exporting is so important. Because if you're competing in a global market, then you're much more likely to have a product that's really good. Let's talk about inequality because, I mean, this was, a, this was a really intriguing passage in the book. You talk about the difference uh, in how people in advanced economies worry about inequality versus those uh, in emerging markets. And you talk about the difference in income disparity and how that's different from the difference in the pace of income growth amongst different, you know, quintiles or sectors of the population or whatever you want to call it. Can you just sort of give us an overview of how your thesis fits into that narrative uh, and why it is that in emerging markets, uh, the inequality story is a little bit different? Well, I think that there's been kind of an Angloization of the inequality debate, 
where in the US, there is this rise in the top 1%. And it's a problem. And we don't have that much, you know, we don't really have any extreme poverty in this country. So focusing on that, that is okay. But that doesn't make it the world's problem. And when we look at the world, actually, if we think of ourselves as global citizens and we look at the distribution of the population, global inequality has decreased sharply, precisely because countries like China have grown so much that their population isn't so, so, so poor compared to, say, the U.S. or, or other advanced countries. And this work fits exactly with that literature, because what you see is that, yeah, Jack Ma got super rich, the founder of Alibaba, but the average Chinese, you know, his compatriot got, got rich alongside him. In the U.S., that's different. And I think this inequality debate and kind of Oxfam's focus on the super rich is precisely the wrong focus. For the world as a whole, what we need is a focus on the bottom of the population. We need to keep that focus on reducing poverty, not on, you know, hating the super rich. Carolyn Freund, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute. The book is Rich People, Poor Countries. Uh, thanks for talking to us. Thanks. It's my pleasure. And that's the end of the interviews portion of today's show. But Shannon, before we give readers our long-form recommendations, I need to do some plug-in. That's right. All right. Sell away. Exactly. So the first Alpha Chatterbox long-form interview is up. It's with an economist named Charles Kenny. I had a really great chat with him uh, about the rise of the rest. And by the rest, he means non-developed countries. And Charles is one of my favorite economists. He is, I think I described him to you earlier, Shannon, as an aggressively sensible guy. I say aggressively sensible because he's very good in combating a lot of the kind of unjustified anxiety about what it would mean for the U.S. and Europe to see their relative standing in the world decline. In other words, the rise of the rest, the rise of countries in Africa, the rise of East Asia. This actually presents amazing opportunities for those of us who still live in the developed world. Uh, and that was the theme of my chat with Charles. Uh, it was really awesome. So everyone, if you're not a subscriber to Alpha Chatter Box, our sister long-form podcast, subscribe now because you get to listen to that conversation with Charles Kenny. And if I can do a little teaser, an upcoming interview between Shannon and the fascinating economist, Emily Oster. I'm really excited about this one. It's going to be a good one. Okay. Long-form recommendations. All right. Shannon, what do you got? Well, I was going to recommend uh, this long New Yorker piece about Carlisle and private equity and carried interest. But instead, I'm going to recommend something far dumber, uh, <laughs> but that really entertained me, which is a story on fusion called A Trend Story About Millennials by The New York Times. It's by Jason O. Gilbert. And it is a pitch-perfect parody of every annoying trend story you have ever read about millennials, not least the most recent story this week that some people might have read about Mike, uh, which is a, one of these millions of digital online publishing millennial-focused companies where people come to the office on hoverboards. Uh, so it's always good to make fun of millennials whenever possible. You know what I you know what I love about this parody, by the way, is that it it fits in with our own perennial defense of the young generation today, right? Oh, Which yeah. I'm sort of I'm not a member of it, 
but I'm a little bit protective of it because they definitely did graduate into a crappy, crappy, crappy job market, and they've had to kind of hack their way through it. And I've got a lot of respect for what young people have had to deal with in the last you know decade or so, and the fact that I I suspect that they're going to end up being a very industrious and a very maybe a thriftier generation oh, yeah. uh, than the ones that preceded them. And I just want to reiterate that it's not your fault. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to recommend. What about you, Cardiff? I am not going to recommend a parody because you just did. I will tack in the other direction and go in the direction of wonk. In this case, foreign policy wonk. There is a cover story in The Atlantic that has been much talked about called The Obama Doctrine. It's written by Jeffrey Goldberg. It's an article that you can clearly tell has been kind of gestating in Goldberg's mind for years. Uh, he interviewed the president many, many times. It is about as good an explication as you're going to get of the way Obama thinks about foreign policy. And there's all kinds of tidbits in there about how Obama thinks of other world leaders, which I thought was just fascinating. You know, uh, I did not know, for instance, that Angela Merkel is Obama's favorite ally, but she definitely is. And it also talks about his kind of, not kind of, but his extremely contentious relationship with uh, Netanyahu mm -hmm. of Israel. And it talks about the way he thinks of Saudi Arabia, who are kind of considered longstanding American allies. And Obama has been questioning just why that is. Because if you look at Saudi culture, there are some things in there that I think would be quite offensive. Not that I think would be, but that very much are very offensive to historical American values, the way they treat women being maybe the most notable one. Uh, so anyways, it's just a fascinating uh, overview of the way Obama thinks about foreign policy. That is the end of today's show, and it is time for Shannon to close us out. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. Leave a voice message. You can also send an email to alphachat at ft.com. We're also on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. We put up our show notes with links to our recommendations and to further reading like Cardiff's opus on Cuba at ft.com slash alpha chat. If you wouldn't mind, we would love it if you go on iTunes, leave us a rating and review. It helps us know what to do better and it helps other people find our show. And as great as the Atlantic article on the Obama doctrine was, what I'm really waiting for is the Amy Keene doctrine, okay, which will come out. And I'm going to guess about 20 years after Amy has conquered the universe. I can't wait to read about it. She'll tell us how she did it. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.